Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anu Arafat, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello and welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So today we are going away with the fairies. Yes, we are going to be looking at how superstition and pre-Christian beliefs endure today in modern Ireland. And they even make an occasional appearance in politics. (laughs) Okay, yeah. But before we go any further, Naomi, we have to extend a huge thank you to everyone who bought one of our tote bags. Yes, so our tote bags for the Irish Passport podcast are selling really fast. So if you want to get one before Christmas, you have to get your order in quick. Yeah, that would make a nice little present for someone. They're very flattering, one of our tote bags. <laughs> we say they're flattering. They are very flattering. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, any, the, the main thing is everyone that's sold really helps us to make our next season. So thank you so much to everyone who's bought one already. Yeah, thank you so much. And to, for all the lovely messages you sent us too. So Tim, just to get this straight, when we're talking about fairies in Ireland, we're not, we're not talking to like um, Tinkerbell type creatures <laughs> no, right it's, it's something else no yeah we're certainly not um ireland of course though has become associated in in like a popular imagination with leprechauns and elves and whatnot um but not that many people outside the country will be aware of the actual fairy tradition in ireland which is which is really quite different from the popular image and which is very strong still today okay so let's explain what it actually is i think like the confusion is probably because the word fairy is a bit bit wrong because it's a it's an English word and it's it's used in Ireland but the actual fairies are something quite different from what you might associate with that word. Right, sure. So it's it's an anglicization, right, or a translation anyway of um of of beings called the ace she, which means the people of the she or the mounds. And those mounds uh, the mounds. are the mounds, the people of the mounds. <laughs> uh, those mounds that they're talking about are uh, ring forts or rass, which littered the Irish countryside. Uh, there are over forty thousand of them actually uh, in Ireland. They're mostly archaeological sites, possibly from the Iron Age or the Middle Ages. So my understanding of these, um, the world of the fairies is that, so these beings are, they're living in these places and it's a bit, it's supposed to be like a, a kind of a parallel universe underground. It sort of overlaps with ours or it has portals into ours. Um, but they don't have wings and they don't have wands and they're actually kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, they're actually, I mean, when you hear people talk about them, they sound like a kind of like mafia, you know, <laughs> kind of a mythical mafia. Uh, the, tra- the tradition is that they're always, you know, making deals or holding things hostage or just taking away your husband or um, and you're not actually ever supposed to speak badly of them because, Naomi, they might be listening. Oh god, they could be listening right now. They're probably listening right now. In fact, you're not supposed even to mention their names at all. Uh, traditionally, Whoops. people would refer to them as the good people or the gentry to flatter them without actually mentioning their name. Okay, that would be totally confusing if we did a podcast on the gentry. So we're going to say fairies. Mm. But anyway, um, I mean, I, I know that they could, they do have the tendency to like lure away the odd child or, you know, steal a baby. Yeah, sure. Which is, I suppose, pretty popular in lots of uh, European uh, supernatural traditions. Okay. But they also have a strong connection with death. Uh, some traditions even see them as spirits of the dead themselves. Uh, most famously, of course, on that line, there is the banshee, which means the woman of the she. Oh, that's the she bit. Okay, mm. so um, 
that's of course a mainstream well a myth that's become fairly mainstream in, in ghost stories the banshee yeah sure and I, you can see why i suppose uh the banshee traditionally is supposed to wail or keen outside your window the night before you're going to die Ah. Mm. And, Naomi, it only happens to certain families, apparently. Especially families beginning with the prefix O, like O'Leary. Oh my god, Tim. That's, <laughs> I don't want to hear that, Tim. That's spooky. <laughs> are you serious? Okay. Well, apparently. So far, anyway, the only people who tend to wail and scream out on my window are people coming home from the pub. But oh, anyway. <laughs> well, one of them. One of them. Uh, keep an ear out. Uh, there, there's also the Lanon Shi. I think we all know a Lanon Shi. Uh, that's a, a fairy lover which is a bit like a succubus, I suppose. And he or she is supposed to enthrall you so much so that you become obsessed with them and you forget to eat and you forget to sleep until you die. Oh, it sounds a bit like my early teens. Um, But to to get a better idea of what fairies are supposed to look like, uh, because it's not very clear, I went and spoke to Eddie Lenehan. Now, he's an author and a storyteller based in County Clare. And um, a while back, he went all around the country collecting folktales from older people about the fairies. And he collected them all in a book. It's called Meeting the Other Crowd, if you want to check it out. Great name. And it's become a really invaluable resource uh, for these traditions, which are, you know, of course, vanishing very quickly. I asked him how you would be able to recognize a fairy if you saw one. Uh, Well, not so simply, perhaps, as it might seem, Mm. because the fairies can take any shape they like. A person sitting beside you, standing beside you, could be one of them, and you wouldn't know it. That's a frightening answer when you think about it. This notion that they're the little people, no, no. They could take an animal shape, they can take a human shape as they please. You wouldn't know. Don't bother them, they won't bother you. But if you do, you're in for a bad time. And how would you bother them? You see, well, if if you interfere with their property, if you interfere with a fairy fault, or disturb a fairy path, or if you disturb a fairy bush, a lone hawthorn bush, and then you're asking for trouble, and you'll usually get it. It could cost you your life. Would you say in the tradition that fairies are particularly associated with death or sterility? Oh no, oh god no, not, not at all. They can be great friends if you, if you uh, oblige them. It was always said in Ireland that if somebody had a wonderful skill, we'll say at football or hodling or singing or dancing or music, it's always said, and even today it's said, that God, that person must have been the fairies. You were very, very proud to have a banshee because she was a warning your death, which look, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a warning of your death? Because look at all the people, for example, who are killed in road accidents with no warning at all, just carried off just like that or taken away by a heart attack or whatever. It'd be nice to be able to make your peace with the world. I guess your affairs in order. Does the tradition change significantly in different parts of the country, or is it pretty uniform? Well, the tradition is fairly much the same. The funny thing is, even in Protestant parts of the country, where you wouldn't expect this thing to be as much believed in, you'll still find it. You'll still find it. I also asked Eddie what was the most memorable story he had been told, and his answer was pretty chilling. Well, uh, that's a collection that I made of stories from the old people. It's been translated into Japanese, it's been translated into Italian, and uh, it's even been used in Moscow University. 
Okay, and what would you say was the most memorable or, or shocking story that you heard amongst them? The last story in the book, it's a horrible, horrible story about a man who planted potatoes in a fairy fort. And he was warned, of course, he was warned, you don't do things like that. But he also made a stupid, stupid statement that, um, that if the fairies interfered with him, he said, I'll take the skin off him. Well, he didn't. They took the skin off of him and the teeth and the nails. They took him to pieces little bit by little bit by little bit until they killed him, the fairies. And that fort, that fort is still there today, the parish of Shanaglish. And I guarantee you it will be there. Okay, so this tradition is pretty dark, mm. um, which I suppose that explains the sense of fear that surrounds the fairies. Um, but Tim, where does it come from in the first place? Right, good question. Well, it, it seems to be able to be traced right back to uh, Celtic mythology. Um, the whole thing, I suppose, in general could be seen as a continuance of pre-Christian traditions in, in local or rural areas. Um, and that's particularly evident with certain fairy trees or landmarks that are kind of like sites of pilgrimage for the fairies. So if you go to the west of Ireland especially, you'll see that people actually come and make offerings or tie ribbons to these trees to appease the fairies. And that's all tied in with Christian myth sometimes, uh, but these sites have clearly been sacred since pre-Christian times. Yeah, there's a few of them around Hoth, actually, the tree full of ribbons and that. But um, mm. I think it's actually all over Europe, you actually have this like alternative map, which is all of these pre-Christian sites, which have traditions or uh, superstitions associated with them. Like, for example, um, I really noticed this in Naples, in Italy, like the place is just thick with traditions like there's constant processions of this or that going on and incense and a lot of it's christian a lot of it's related to various saints but a lot of it is kind of pre-christian as well like they would have witches and things and also you you see these um red chilies hanging everywhere Hmm. and that's a that's a porta fortuna or a good luck charm like to keep the the evil eye away and that kind of thing Hmm. so um like tim is there is there an origin myth that explains where fairies come from in celtic mythology well, there, there's a few different possible ones. Uh, there's one particular Gaelic myth that stands out, and that's about the Tuatha de Danann. Oh, yeah. Um, so the Tuatha de Danann, are, they're supposed to be like sort of the original people in Ireland um, before the Celts came in. Uh, so a bit like the Titans in Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, their name means the, the people of the goddess Danu, and they were supposed to be one of the several groups who had settled the island, according to ancient myth. Uh, now, a lot of what we know about them is passed down through medieval historians, so it might not reflect the original myth as it was in, um, like, Iron Age Ireland. Um, mm. But the mythology we have today uh, claims that the Tuatha were supernatural beings who had come to Ireland long ago on a dark cloud. On a cloud, okay, yeah. cool, all right. Uh, but they were supposed to have built the the huge, big megalithic passage graves uh, that you find in the Boyne Valley, like Newgrange. Um, but Naomi, the two of the Danon weren't long for this world because Ireland was later invaded by the Gales. And I guess that's us. Yeah, apparently that's us, yeah. Apparently the Gales, according to the mythology, are supposed to have come over from Galicia in Spain, and they were supposed to have banished the Tuatadanan underground into the Shi, or the ring forts. And the Tuatadanan have been living there ever since. Okay, so that's where you get the tradition of this parallel underworld that's just below the surface. Mm. Um, I suppose, yeah, it maybe explains why there's like a tension or conflict 
convictable relationship between the the people above and the people below mm. um I, I suppose if there are these ring forts it's not that surprising that a myth would spring up explaining them if you haven't been to ireland and seen one you can you can actually see them on google earth if you look at basically anywhere in the irish countryside you'll almost definitely see a fairy fort so they're big circular banks of earth which uh, has like a smooth central area and it probably can feel quite eerie to be in the middle of one. And a lot of them have underground tunnels underneath them. And so they can totally look like the entrance into an underground world. Yeah, sure. And there's, there's a, quite a lot of debate about what these landmarks actually were or when they date from. Uh, the traditional view, like I said earlier, um, is that they were Iron Age constructions. But that's being, con- that's being challenged quite a bit these days. Many would have been used or maybe even built right into the Middle Ages, which makes sense because they're pretty useful circular structures for defense. They might have been dwelling places, uh, they might have been military forts, or they might have just been places to keep animals or even industrial centers. So it's, you know, Mm. um, it's hard enough to know. Uh, Some of them were probably ritual sites, and a lot of them are associated with the kings and the heroes in Celtic mythology. There's actually a particular monumental complex of these forts on the Hill of Tara in County Meath. And that's where the ancient high kings of Ireland were supposed to have ruled from. So if you hear of an Irish place name that begins with Wrath, uh, that, that means there would have been one of these ring forts nearby. Yeah, and another one of the reasons that these ring forts have remained so intact is that it is considered extremely bad luck to tamper with them. Um, so you'll notice if you look at a map that, you know, nothing is really ever planted in them. Um, roads, you'll notice, tend to go around them. And Naomi, did you know that Eddie Lenhin, who we heard from earlier, uh, even managed to have an entire highway rerouted in 1999 because it was planned to go through a local fairy tree? No, I did not know that. Fair play. Yeah, yeah it kind of went down in local legend. Um, to cut a long story short, the council was going to build a highway through this hawthorn tree that was supposed to be a fairy meeting place. And Eddie started writing letters to newspapers to stop this from happening. And it all kind of got out of hand. And before long, the whole issue had become become an international news story. So uh, let's hear what he had to say about it. There was uh, a scar, a fairy bush there, and I had been told by, about that by some of the local older people there that I used to collect stories from, and when the new road was being built, I just pointed it out to the builders that were going to go on ahead with the road, which I contacted the Irish Times, and they printed the letter, but luckily for the bush, I, I suppose. The correspondent of the, of the New York Times spotted the letter. He was a man called Jim Clarity. <laughs> and he wrote a quarter page in the New York Times about it. I don't know whether they took it serious or whether they thought it was just another petty leprechaun story. But the fact is that he wrote it and took a picture of it and uh, it was syndicated then across America. That was the fun of it because There are certain times of year which are more associated with the fairies and that reflects the old Celtic calendar. So that would have been associated with different deities. So there's Imbolc, so that's the festival of purification on the 1st of February. There's Bieltana, which is the festival of sex and fertility on Mm -hmm. the 1st of May. 
you. And then there's Lunasa, which is the harvest festival in honor of the god Luke. And uh, that's usually on the last Sunday of July. And um, the Celts seem to have woven this mythology around some of the older monuments in Ireland that were built thousands of years previous. Ah, yeah. So like Newgrange in the Boyne Valley that we mentioned, uh, for our listeners, these are really cool megalithic structures, which are often built to align with, with the solstices or the equinoxes. Yeah, so they predate Gaelic Ireland by quite a long way. So they're, they're older than the Egyptian pyramids, for example. And no one really knows who built them. Um, they're marvels of engineering. So in Newgrange, for example, on the, the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year, um, Newgrange has this small gap, which is above its entrance. And it's, it's so precisely lined up that just on that one day of the year, when the, when the sun rises on the winter, winter solstice, it shines directly down the long passage into the inner tomb and lights the whole thing up. So I, I don't know, Tim, but what I was taught anyway was that this, this, this meant that the god Luke was returning and like putting his fertilizing the ground and that light arriving was like the fertilization and then some months later the 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 earth would come to life again like the seeds would grow and you would have spring it's a curious fact that to this day um the dates of that celtic calendar are still considered the beginning of spring summer and autumn in ireland even though you know those are different dates to everywhere else our listeners in ireland might be surprised to hear this that we're the only country in the world uh, that does this so in ireland uh, spring starts at the on the first of february but if you say this to anyone else in europe anyway or in the united states they'll be quite surprised and that's all because of impulk <laughs> so i guess these uh these Celtic festivals were um, they were rebaptized during the uh, process of Christianization, right? So they're still today they would be saints days. Sure, right. So uh, just like uh, you know the fairy lore, many of the the old traditions remain in these in these Christian festivals. So for instance, on Imbolc, which is now Saint Bridget's Day, children still make these peculiar crosses out of reeds or rushes. Officially, they're called Saint Bridget's crosses, and they're considered a Christian thing. But if you look at them, you can clearly see that they are essentially swastikas. Oh my god! <laughs> I totally did not realize that they were swastikas. Mm. I used to weave them as a child. That is so sinister. Yeah, sure. So did I. Of course, I mean, the uh, maybe a better word would be sun cross, uh, which is another kind of version of this swastika symbol. And it was an ancient pan-European symbol of goodwill, you know, before the Nazis got hold of it. And you'll see it all over the world, you know, from, from China to Ireland. But since it vaguely rese- resembles a Christian cross, it, it did survive Christianization. And um, even St. Bridget herself is probably just a Christianization of the Celtic goddess, whose name is Bridget. Wow. So mm. the, I suppose the, the almost the most famous pre-Christian festival is Ihihauna. So that's the 31st of October and we'll know it as Halloween. So it's the evening before the Gaelic New Year, which is called Samhain. That's the 1st of November and it's the night between one year and the next. So it's a festival of the dead when, the, you know, the world of the living and the world of the dead are a bit closer. And it was Christianized as All Hallows' Eve, which became Halloween. And that also precedes the Catholic feast day for the dead. One of those ring forts that we talked about on the hill of Tara is particularly associated with Halloween. It's called Tlachta, if I'm saying that correctly. It's a lot of, there's a lot of consonants in there, guys. Um, traditionally, it's where the first bonfires of the year would be lit on Samhain, or the 1st of November, to mark the Celtic New Year. The traditions of Halloween 
will have come from Ireland and then been brought to the United States where they became like an American version. And now, funnily enough, they're kind of being exported all over the world because of the cultural clout of the US, mm. uh, including back into Ireland itself. I don't know, the, my only idea of what Halloween is like in the United States is from films and TV and stuff. But essentially what it was like for me when I was growing up was you would, first of all, the first step would be to try and gather some illegal fireworks. They're, they're <laughs> like not legal for public use in uh, the Republic of Ireland, but they are in Northern Ireland. And of course, they would just be smuggled down south. So we go to Henry Street in the city centre of Dublin and try and get whatever we could find. Um, and then we would build a big bonfire in the garden with loads of sticks and stuff from around um and usually there'd be like a big party with like loads of children coming around and you'd make your costume something simple like just a sheet with some holes in it or whatever and um and there would be games like um lots of them involving apples and flour and trying to get money and barn brack and all that kind of thing um and then you go off around the neighborhood trick-or-treating it's quite an anarchic kind of a night yeah for sure absolutely and you know lots of people around our age will still um remember carving turnips which were the original um you know kind of pumpkin heads that you would carve but turnips are, are much more difficult to carve than pumpkins um you know to get to grips with them uh, so you can see why when irish immigrants went to uh, the united states that they swapped in the turnips uh, for for pumpkins instead um, makes total sense makes total sense I'm and turnips look much more creepy as well, you know, because they can look a lot more like a human head when you have a candle in them. They do look so creepy. We can share a picture of this online. Oh, yeah, let's. Where I came from anyway, all the children would set off in little groups in the dark. You know, we were in the middle of the country, so it was pitch black. You couldn't see your hand in front of you and you wouldn't have your parents with you or anything. So it was, you know, pretty exciting for the kids. So you'd be tiptoeing up all these dark driveways to ask for money or fruit or sweets. And uh, from what I remember anyway, you'd have to sing a song first or perform a poem or something because you wouldn't get anything other Otherwise. But there was definitely this atmosphere of menace in the air. It was pretty terrifying and pretty exhilarating, uh, you know, because everyone was in the dark, everyone was in disguise and everyone was kind of anonymous to a degree. Yeah, I definitely remember that excitement and that exhilaration. And there was that just edge to it as well. And, you know, Halloween was particularly associated with one malevolent fairy, the puka. There's lots of poems and songs about the puka that you can hear about Halloween. Um, uh, so the puka was supposed to um, run around and contaminate all the food in the fields that was left after the harvest. Uh, so anything that you eat from a field uh, after Ihahauna was supposed to be uh, poisoned by the puka spitting on it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense, I guess, mm. if it's going to go off. To find out about Halloween today, Tim hit the streets of Galway to find out how people observe Ihahauna in modern Ireland. But before we go over to Galway, we are delighted to say that this segment is sponsored in the name of Julia Hines Sepper. Julia was born in Oatfield, just outside of Ballinasloe in County Galway, and she emigrated from Ireland in 1954 to the United States. Her son Chris got in touch with us from Montgomery, Ohio, and asked us to dedicate this segment to her, saying that his mother is the caretaker of Irish history for the family. Oh, that's lovely. A big thank you to both of you. Yeah, thank you so much. By the way, if any other listeners out there would like to sponsor your own segment, that's another way to support the podcast, and you can even sponsor an entire episode. You can do it on our website, www.theirishpassport.com, and do make sure to email us to let us know who to whom you would like to dedicate your segment. Let's hear from your report, Tim. Puka, puka, it's my shot on. Puka, 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 a hen, a doe, a tree. Kalyuk, Kalyuk, a smisha on Kalyuk. Kalyuk, Kalyuk, a hen, a doe, a tree. Cat, dove, cat, dove, a smisha on cat, dove. Cat, dove, cat, dove, a hen, a doe, a tree. 
Walking around Ireland on the 1st of November, there's a chill and decidedly deathly stillness to the air. The sun, bright as it is, is so low on the horizon that the light has this slightly reddish or bronze quality, and the days in recent weeks have suddenly become brutally short. Last night, according to the Gaelic calendar, Iha Hauna marked the traditional transition from one year to the next, the end of the harvest, or Dera Fór, and the beginning of the winter season of Samhain. I asked some people on the street what the feast day meant to them, and that included seven-year-old Sophia and six-year-old Brady, who explained to me what it was all about, and even gave me a rendition of their own Halloween song.
No, we actually got in this morning. Oh, you got in this morning? Yes. Okay. And were you aware that uh, Halloween uh, has Irish origins? I was not. Okay. I thought it was, was only Latin of, of Latin origin. It's um, it's the Celtic New Year today. This is. Uh, oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, great. That's very intriguing. Do, as kids, did you go trick or treating? Yes, yes, we did. And what did, what would you do? Just we stole candies. Basically, yes. you stole candy. Basically, yes. stole candy. We have a bowl. We're taking the bowl. <laughs> I think there's more money spent on costumes. I think it's become a lot more Americanized. I think it's become nearly, well no, it's not as big as Christmas. It's more like a festival. It's definitely bigger, much more money involved. We had a black bin bag that we used to cut holes into. Did we put a hat on? I don't, we painted our faces, that was it. That was our costume. Because we were just let go around where we were living, which was very dark, and we'd knock on people's houses. And I think the idea of a child's safety is certainly heightened these days. You know, some might say by the media. Some might say that it's it's a little bit over the top, but I would be the, I'm the same. I wouldn't allow my children do what we were allowed to do when I was young. I just wouldn't. When I told my own children about what I used to do, I even could feel the fear as in my body as I was describing it. That walking down that dark country road and knocking on people's doors. And in actual fact, some people weren't even that particularly nice. I nearly said the name of the person, but we won't mention him. I decided to talk to my own parents, who grew up in the western regions of Clare and Mayo. I asked them what Halloween was like for them growing up in the 50s and 60s. Well, did you celebrate Halloween for as long as you can remember? Yes. Any occasion like that was a huge, big, big celebration because there was so little happening. So little, we had no television, we had no radio, we had no electricity for a long time while, while I, until I was about five. So therefore, anything that came up like that was huge. Um, and it was celebrated within the family. It wasn't celebrated in the neighbourhood. It was family. Uh, so Halloween was huge religious-wise as well because the 1st of November was All Saints Day and the 2nd of November was more important still. It was All Souls Day. And it was at that stage, 1st of November was a holiday of obligation, which meant it was like a Sunday. So if it fell in the middle of the week, everybody stopped. There was no work. There was nothing going on. No servile work, that's what it was called. You wouldn't do gardening or mowing the lawn or anything like that. You started preparing for Halloween once August came in. The hazelnuts had to be picked. So we'd all go to the wood on a Sunday with my father and get the hazelnut trees and get the hazelnuts. And then they'd be stored and saved. I'm not really sure how he saved them, but I think it was in straw. And then the apples, the red apples had to be kept well, he kept them very well anyway because they were put into a pit in the ground. Straw first and then clay over it. Um, and he'd come in in the mornings before Halloween would come at all and he'd have red apples in his, in his pocket, which was a huge big thing when we'd be going to school to get an apple. So when Halloween came, really all you needed were the apples and the nuts. There were no, there were no sweets. There was no such thing as going around to neighbours or anything like that. Uh, so the children all had games. One of these games was a fortune-telling game. Each member of the family was blindfolded and placed in front of three saucers, one containing a handful of clay, the other filled with water, and another with a wedding ring. The player had to dip their finger into one of these saucers. Nobody wanted the water or the clay, because the water signified that you'd be going abroad, immigrating, like all of our brothers and sisters did. The ring was the one. You were getting married. 
and the clay was deadly because you're going to die. Another game involved an apple being suspended from a door frame. The player's hands were bound behind their back and they had to catch the dangling apple between their chin and their mouth to take a bite. Trust me, it's much more difficult than it sounds. The first person to manage to take a bite would get to eat the whole apple. A third game involved a basin of water filled with nuts, apples and coins. The player had to try and extract what they could using only their teeth. Obviously, the money at the bottom of the basin was the most valuable, but it was also the most difficult to get. Oh, I hated the ducking. Because we weren't used to water, really. That much water. There was no such thing as swimming or learning to swim or anything like that or putting your head under the water. So this was... That was one thing I didn't like. So that was basically it. And that happened early in the evening. And, you know, it was all a big, big excitement. And then you got ready for mass the next day, really. And you had to be fasting that time from, I think it was 12 o'clock at night until, the, until you went to communion. All, all food stopped at a certain time anyway. Then, of course, there were the pranks. More often than not, carried out by my own uncles, apparently. Now, the neighbours, like, would be chosen. Maybe the Protestants... Um, unfortunately, not, I mean, I wouldn't like to have been a Protestant at that stage on Halloween. And then there were other, maybe older men living on their own that would have been annoying the boys, like, you know, not allowing them to do this, that and the other. And what they did to their houses were they put straw in the chimney. In other words, clogged the chimney. And there were only open fires that time in the houses, mostly. So next thing, the house, the house inside would get full of smoke and the people would go crazy inside wondering what was happening, etc., etc. Of course, the boys ran off. And in other people's houses, they pulled all their vegetables and threw them at the front door. I never liked it one way or another. I thought it was always a celebration of evil of some sort. Did you mention about putting eggshells in your neighbour's garden to make sure that the hens wouldn't lay the no. ball on you? That no. kind of thing. I mean, everything was done from the point of view of wishing ill on somebody else. I mean, I, I do remember one particular incident, and that was where somebody tied a dead cat to a knocker on a door. The house belonged to a widow, and they knocked on the door, ran away, and of course when the widow came out, the cat swung and hit her in the face. Not a nice story. Okay. Oh, that was desperate. <laughs> and, and, and hold on now, so you were you, you were living in a town, so you couldn't have gone into the forest collecting nuts or anything. Did you have any kind of celebration like that? Uh, no, it's the same celebration. We had the bobbing the apples and all that kind of thing. And of course the barnbrack was there, trying to get the ring. Boring brack is a special cake baked at Halloween. It literally means speckled cake. Traditionally, you put a ring inside and the person who gets it in their slice is going to get married the next year. Um, I remember my grandfather actually getting the ring, but eating it, without realising he'd eaten it. He just he used to eat big slices of the stuff. So <laughs> he actually ate it anyway. And he choked. <laughs> and my grandmother was there, and he really was choking. And she gave him the most unmerciful wallop in the back, and out comes the ring and hits the wall on the far side of the table. You can't put on that. Well, you better end this. <laughs> now, Naomi, listening to that, it might sound a bit like the old traditions of Halloween are vanishing from Ireland a bit, right? I guess it's a bit like St. Patrick's Day. It's sort of an American version that's coming back home. Sure, right. But funnily enough, there is one tradition that definitely hasn't seemed to have gone away. Naomi, we talked about fairies, we talked about fairy forts, and there are also fairy trees. Would you be brave enough to interfere with one of these landmarks owned by the fairies? What, like to cut down a fairy tree? Like to cut down a fairy tree. There is absolutely no way I would cut down a fairy tree. (laughs) I would definitely not. I mean, not just for the bad luck 
like but also like it's not for me to cut down something that's a fairy tree like how no who knows how old that could be like <laughs> no way okay all right well i put the same question to those people on the streets of galway and to my parents and here's what they said are you superstitious yourselves <laughs> i'm not no we're not no absolutely not no, no would you would you cut down a fairy tree well, that now, that, that might be a bit testing ah. now, that, you see, yeah, yeah, I'm now, you see, yeah, there you are. That's what, we that. have one in Clare, a famous tree. Yeah, yeah. They do, do they? And there, you see, they, they've made a new road down by... The, the uh, bypass. Ennis, we'll say, to, to Limerick. And there's a historian, Eddie Lenahan, and he said he's all folklore. So he said it would be very bad luck. Very bad look, yeah. To, to cut a fairy tree, so in uh, on the roadway they kind of detoured and left the fairy tree there, so it still stands there today. Oh right, okay. So, right. so that is, yeah. That and, and you wouldn't cut down one yourself. If I gave you a hundred euros, would you? No, you'd have no, to. No, you'd no. have to up it now. <laughs> the stakes would have to be very high. That's so would you? Would you deep down? Would you believe in fairies? No, but you still you still have the thing at the back of your mind. Yeah, yeah. No. Would, would you consider yourself superstitious? No. Yourself? Uh, a wee bit. A little bit, yeah. Well, uh, would you cut down a fairy tree? Uh, <laughs> no. Funny enough, I wouldn't. But I wouldn't call myself superstitious. But I would. Uh, I would have a certain amount of respect for things like that. But uh, no, I wouldn't. No. If I gave you a hundred euros. Yeah. Be away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like a fairy for it? Yeah. No, wouldn't touch it. You wouldn't either. No. No. What I've about a th- what about a thousand euros? No. No, I wouldn't. I would believe in leaving well enough alone, yeah. It's a curious answer, which in a funny kind of way proves the stereotype about the Irish. We're so superstitious that some superstitions aren't even considered as such. It's just common sense at this stage. I have to admit that I've heard so much about vengeful fairy folk in my childhood and seen enough real fear in the eyes of older people that I myself would be loath to cut down a fairy tree. Not only would it seem like unnecessary temptation of fate, however silly that might sound, but it would also somehow be like spitting in the eye of the community. Some things, a simple hawthorn bush or a rock or what have you, have been mutually agreed to be sacred or or taboo, and this communal fear of retribution from the fairies has, in an odd way, had a certain effect of bonding the community together. Would you ever cut down a fairy tree? Yep. You would? Hmm. No. Well, it depends what you mean by a fairy tree. Well, you know, in a fairy fort, like, we, 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 we would have had a fairy fort at home. And there's no way anybody would cut down a tree out of it. You know, you don't, you leave the fairies alone. Even though I don't believe in fairies, of course I don't. But why do it unless you really had to? If I gave you a thousand euros to do it? Well, I'd do it for less than that. <laughs> that kind of notion was very, very built in mm. to us at home at uh, there was um, Sweeney's Fort, uh, which was, I'd say, an old uh, rampart or something. And they used to have blackberries on it. And if I picked blackberries on that, my mother wouldn't choose them. I'd bring them home and she'd say, where'd you get them? And I'd say, Sweeney's Fort. And she said, no, you can throw them in the bin. So the belief was there, the same as a puka spitting on the berries, you know, the same kind of thing. Did people believe in fairies in the 50s and 60s? Oh, they, they were did. afraid of them. Oh, very much afraid of them, yeah. And how would you mess with them in the first place? Somebody would die in the family, somebody would get sick in the family, something really bad would happen in the family. If you cut down that tree, our animals would start dying. But always something happened if there was a tree, if there was a fort interfered with, something would happen. 
And, you know, something bad happens in families anyway, but they then would blame the idea of the fort being interfered with. You know, I, can, I have memories of this happening. Something about the fairy fort in our own land. We'll say the county council might have come or something happened. Animals started dying. Of course the animals weren't dying because the fort was interfered with, but they blamed the idea. So that's very embedded in people then, even in young people or in the family, if they're listening to that. Well, fairies are not very nice people, or they, you know, they're a, they are a force to be reckoned with. And people really believe that. I would not like to interfere with them, because I suppose it's the influence of what I've heard and been taught and grown up with. In a weird way, belief in fairies seems to be alive and well in 21st century Ireland. But all of you listening at home, I'm sure that you would think that this whole theme of fairies doesn't link in to current affairs or politics. Well, you would be wrong. You would be wrong, because in <laughs> Ireland, <laughs> we have the Healy Rays. Tim, did you know that there's a section of road near Curragh Glass in Kerry that keeps sinking? I, I did not. Do you know what's responsible? I, I would assume subsidence. No, no, no. It's because there are fairy forts in the vicinity. Oh, oh right. Oh, yeah, of course. I should have known. <laughs> so uh, according to the Irish Times, Danny Healy Ray, who is an elected politician, said that it was well known that mm. people who interfered with the fairy's territory in that area had bad luck. Mm. And you couldn't pay him to do it himself. And he is absolutely sure that that is what is responsible for this recurring dip in the road that keeps happening again whenever it's repaired. So he was asked to explain himself on the radio. Let's hear a clip of that. Well, in and around the general area of Blintesk and Lissabegin and in many parts of Kerry, there are fairy forts and tradition um, taught us and, and it was handed on to us that you weren't to touch those uh, ring forts or fairy forts or leases which uh, were called by, are, are still being called by um, many people. You're not to touch those because um, the, the, the whatever way they were put there, there are big mounds, there, a lot of work went into them without machinery and they were handmade obviously and, uh, and we do know that they're all uh, connected underground. I mean, now, the Healy Rays are quite particular, to be fair. Maybe you can explain to our listeners who they are, Naomi. Okay, yes. So the Healy Rays are a family of politicians from Kerry. So that's quite a rural region, lots of tourism in southwest Ireland. It's a very beautiful part of the world, actually. My dad's family come from there. So the first Healy Ray, the patriarch of this clan, was Jackie. And he would have just been Jackie Healy originally, but he gained the ray to differentiate him from the other Healys. So that's common in some parts of Ireland when you have like uh, one surname uh, that's particularly popular. You get an extra given name and sometimes that becomes hereditary. All oh, right. So like the way you have people called like Dahiog or Porik Dove. Uh, so that's like uh, David Jr. Or, or Patrick with the black hair. And uh, sometimes those suffixes like stick to the family for generations. Yeah, or like the Cope, like Pat the Cope Gallagher, mm. <laughs> which comes from this cooperative that's up in Donegal, I think. And yeah, they, they, they end up going down the generations. But anyway, the, the Ray in Healy Ray refers to the townland where Jackie Healy's family was from. So that's Ray Caslock. So Jackie Healy Ray became a politician and he developed this kind of clientelist style that defines the dynasty so essentially their mission is to represent local interests so that means bypasses for Kerry roads for Kerry funding for Kerry hospitals for Kerry and they will lend support to whatever political faction gives that to them so that's Jackie Healy Ray so who has succeeded him 
Okay, so Jackie Healy Ray died in 2014 and he passed on his political mission to two of his sons, Michael Healy Ray and Danny Healy Ray, who are both currently in the Irish Parliament at Dáil. And there are more, Tim, there are more. There's <laughs> Danny's son, Johnny. Johnny Healy Ray is a local councillor. And his sister, Maura Healy Ray, is a councillor. And the entire political machine is manned by Healy Rays. So Danny Healy Ray also employs his son's wife, Caroline Mahoney, oh. and his daughter, Elaine Healy Ray, as secretarial assistants. And Michael Healy Ray employs Jackie Jr., so Jackie Jr. Healy Ray, as his parliamentary <laughs> assistant. Oh, Naomi, my head is spinning with Healy Ray's. Yeah, so their reputation is that they work very hard, but they also totally milk the situation by employing their family and also winning loads of local contracts for haulage and stuff for their own companies. This sort of thing, does this happen in other countries or is this specific to Kerry? Well, it's actually something specific to Ireland. So we have a really unusually large amount of politicians who are independent. So they're not in a political party. And the Healy Rays aren't, you know, right or left. They're just Healy Rays. And this is all down to the Irish political system. So this is how it works, right? If you're if you're an Irish voter, you go down on election day to the bowling booth and you will get a ballot paper and it will have a long list of candidates on it. And some of them will be from parties from the two big ones like Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. They're both vaguely centrist. Some of them will be from smaller ones like Labour or Sinn Féin or the Greens. And then there'll be a long list of people, sometimes as long as the other ones, who don't have any party at all. And those are independents. Right, okay. So in somewhere like the US or the UK, usually you need a party apparatus to give you the clout to actually get elected. But if we look at Kerry as an example, okay, in the constituency of Kerry in the 2016 election, there were five seats up for grabs in this one constituency. So that's five TDs or Chakta Lawmakers are going to go into Dáil Éireann. And there were 16 people competing for those five seats. Now, for any one of them to, to get a seat, they needed one fifth of the votes cast. So Tim, if you had to guess, what would you say is one fifth of like the valid votes cast in Kerry? How many would that be? In County Kerry? Well, like yeah. it, it's a pretty small population, so it can't be more than a few thousand. It was just over 13,000 in 2016. Okay. So that, that means to get a seat, you have to get just over 13,000 people to vote for you in your local area. Um. Now, they, they, it means that you don't need to be part of a national campaign at all. You just have to, you have to be really popular locally. This means that people can get seats without a political party behind them. And it also favours families. So the Healy Rays all combined, you know, with all of their local networks that they have, they can cross campaign for each other and they leverage like, you know, their GAA clubs or their schools or their churches that they're in and and so on. And they're also notorious for turning up to every funeral in Kerry to shake people's hands. So they know everyone and they're notorious for this. Loads of people have their personal phone numbers and will actually call them up to talk like it's intensely intensely local and that's exactly how Danny Healy Ray got elected so he entered the race very late in 2016 and because of a very coordinated precise campaign with his brother Michael they ran away with the election and Michael Healy Ray got the biggest first preference vote in the entire country oh my god I didn't know that yeah So the reason why this favours families is because you can lend your network from one family member to another. Um, And you can also, you can inherit like the network from your dad. And that's actually really common, not just for independents like the Healy Rays, but within Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. It's really common for seats to pass down for people to inherit seats. So like our last Taoiseach, 
uh, Enda Kenny, he inherited his seat from his dad. And a lot of big names in the big parties from political families like that. So in a strange way, then, the Healy Rays are actually kind of like a, a microcosm of the whole Irish political system. Well, they, they really explain like an interesting quirk of it and an effect of the like perfect proportional representation system that we have. But what happens is that governments often end up needing independence to prop up their majority, just like the current government, in fact. And what that means typically is it means catering to the precise issue that's like the pet issue of the independence they need to woo. So that might be a hospital or a bypass or the reopening of like step aside garden station or whatever it is. <laughs> right, step aside, of course. Uh, sure. I mean, like this is criticized quite a bit, isn't it? This kind of a uh, parish pump politics. People don't like that politicians are looking out for their their own local police station, say, uh, instead of working to improve the police as a whole in the country, for instance. Yeah, exactly. That's the criticism that you end up, you know, pitting Kerry against Limerick when in fact we need to work together for a, a whole national system. And that's the criticism of the big parties. But also, you know, the response to that is actually a constituent wants someone to represent their interests. And this actually gives a real voice to people in politics. And it's more democratic than having big parties dominate and make all politics national. Hmm. But what's interesting about the Healy Rays is how successful they are as a kind of rural populist. So this is how it works. Tim, have you noticed that they just keep going viral? Right, sure. They do say some pretty outrageous things. They're always in the newspapers. Like they, they get so much press coverage compared to other politicians. They have, they're really, really good on branding. So like Michael will never be seen without that flat cap that he wears. He's always in it. Let's listen to the uh, election song of Michael Healy Ray. Okay, so he released this song and it's got a, a video track and everything with him posing in his cap and with a with a rifle and everything. Okay. Um, I actually haven't heard this, so I might actually play it right now. It's time to vote, I'm in. Back to the doll again. I said vote Healy Ray. Your number one, on two or three. He will always help in any way. So vote number one, Michael Healy Ray. Oh, wow. I, I had never heard that before, Naomi. That's quite something. So it's not just this. They keep making statements that just make headlines all over the place. So there was the time that Danny Healy Ray denied climate change. Oh, God. I don't agree with all this story about climate change at all. And uh, there has been patterns of climate change going back over the years before the, indeed there was ever a combustible engine working or put in, play in, in, in this country or in any other country. Because if we go back to the 11th and the 12th centuries, the, this country was uh, roasted out of it. And in the 13th, uh, the 15th and the 16th centuries, we were drowned out of it. I believe that God above is in charge of, of, the, of the weather and that we here can't do anything about it. We, indeed, I will say to you, this go last government didn't do the things they were supposed to do, not to mind. Not to, not to mind, attempting uh, to, 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 to regulate or rectify the weather. Then there was the time that Michael Healy Ray called for the army to take on the rhododendron bushes that are invading Kerry National Park. The rhododendron situation in Killarney National Park has gone so bad now, Minister. 
Nothing short of calling in the army is going to put it right. We all know that Killarney is not the tourism capital of Kerry or of Ireland or of Europe, but it is the tourism capital of the world. And I want to put on that on the record of the House. You rightly state the money that has been spent, but we are losing the war with regard to the rhododendron. Oh, those evil rhododendron bushes, will they ever stop? Who says rhododendrons like that? Anyway, I asked a bunch of people from Kerry about the Healyways and the general response was that they're really popular. Like, they are considered strong representatives of Kerry. They have strong local support and that's reflected in their electoral results. One guy, Cahill, told me on Twitter, Michael fights really hard for the county and his people and he's the busiest TD in in the country. And people vote for him because he gets things done locally, which Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael absolutely do not do. So there's no road from Kerry to any city, for example, he said. He, oh. <laughs> he built the road, Naomi. He built the he, road. He, he built the road. But, you know, the, the Healy Rays are also pretty divisive. Like some people in Kerry are totally embarrassed by them and by the fact that people vote for them. But then I asked on Twitter in general what people associated with the Healy Rays and the response was totally different. All right, yeah. So what did they say? Okay, so people were overwhelmingly negative people from outside Kerry. They were saying they're gobshites, gombean men, eejits, flat earthers, a finger in every pie. One person did say fairies. Hmm. And a lot of people also were really insulting about the people who vote for them. So they were calling them like inbred eejits and all this stuff, you know. Yeah. So the thing is, though, that's perfect for the Healy Rays. That's perfect. But what do you mean? How so? Because their whole shtick is playing up to the idea of the elitist people in Dublin looking down on Kerry and ignoring Kerry. It's exactly the same trick as populists internationally. It rallies their core support around them. Oh, fascinating. I never thought of it like that. There's a, a cartoonist who's from Kerry herself. And she goes by Kiri Ock on, on Twitter. And she drew this dynamic perfectly. So she calls it the Healy Ray cycle. <laughs> it's a circular effect, right? So it goes like this. One, a Healy Ray says something into idiotic. Two, Kerry people are ridiculed in the press and online. Three, the us versus them attitude intensifies. Four, Healy Ray's campaign as the only ones who represent the poor, marginalised Kerry creature against uppity Dublin big shots. Five, the Healy Ray's are elected and the cycle continues again. Aha, right, of course. So it's all a cunning plan. All a cunning plan. There is method in the madness. I can see it all clearly now. Now, you know, Eddie Lenehan told me, Naomi, that certain families who are inexplicably successful or wealthy or uh, fortunate in business are sometimes thought to be in league with the fairies themselves. Oh my god, are we on to an Irish fairy conspiracy theory? <laughs> Minister Healy Ray, we're on to you. You know, suddenly this conspicuous defense of the fairies in your constituency explains itself. <laughs> anyway, listen, listen, this is all we have time for today uh, before we end up flying away with the fairies ourselves. Thank you so much for being with us. And don't forget, it may be your last chance to get a canvas bag delivered on time for Christmas. So do get your orders in. Yep. And do, as ever, please like and share our podcast and subscribe if you like what you heard today. All the relevant links you can find on www.theirishpassport.com and we're on Twitter at, at @passportirish. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>